there are two ways of looking at uh, the life of David. You can look at him as a picture of Jesus Christ, and this is perfectly proper to do so. Uh, the Lord Jesus himself used this uh, uh, analogy. And David was not only the uh, forerunner and ancestor according to the flesh of Jesus, uh, the Lord Jesus, but he was also in his reign a picture of Christ. Uh, in the general and large aspect of this book, uh, the the reign of David is a picture of the reign of Jesus Christ in the millennium. And just as David went through a time when he was rejected and persecuted and, and uh, hounded and harassed and finally and gathered in the time of his exile, gathered men around him to build a small group that became his uh, leaders and his uh, uh, commanders and generals when he did become king over the land, so this is a picture of Christ in his present rejection, now uh, forsaken and rejected by the world, gathering out in secret those who will be his, those who will be his commanders and generals and captains and so on when he comes to reign in power and glory over the earth. And uh, he will come and establish his kingdom and rule and reign in righteousness, as the scripture says. And David is a picture of that, a beautiful picture. As God develops this and brings it to pass, we can see what he's doing also in, pre in the present world scene in bringing Christ at last to his throne where he too shall reign in righteousness. But now, David is not only a picture of Christ, but he's a picture of each individual believer. And it's only as we read this book from that point of view that the book seems to come alive and glow with truth for us. If you look at these Old Testament books as so many mirrors held up in front of you, and look for yourself in there, you'll always find yourself. Psychologists tell us that every that, that in our dreams we always are present. No matter what it is you dreamed about last night, the central object was you. It may have been a, a donkey or a, a cow or some other circumstance, but whatever it was, it was you. You're always in the center of your dreams. And the amazing thing is that in the scripture, you're always in the center of that. These things writ were written, Paul says, for our instruction, that we might understand of ourselves as we see ourselves worked out in terms of human lives by these characters in the pages of Scripture. Now, this book, then, is a picture for us of, of what happens in a Christian's life as he comes, as he is given in by, uh, under God the place of, of dominion, the place of reign in your life. And you, I hope by now, have learned to recognize that every Christian is offered a kingdom, just as David was offered a kingdom here. And that kingdom is the kingdom of your own life. And it's a kingdom exactly like the kingdom of Israel. There are enemies outside it threatening it. There are enemies from within that threaten to undermine it. And those enemies persisted in Israel. The kingdom, uh, the kings of Israel were never able to get rid of the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and all the other ites of uh, uh, that day. And they form a picture for us of those internal en enemies that threaten to 
undermine and overthrow our rule and dominion that God intends for us to have as we learn to reign in life by Jesus Christ. And what are those enemies for you? Well, you don't call them Jebusites and parasites and so on. You call them jealousy and envy and uh, lust and bitterness and resentment and worry and anxiety and all these other ites and isms and asms and spasms that afflict us in our daily walk. Now, this is the this is the kingdom that is offered to us. And as we see David being brought by God to the place of reigning over this kingdom, we'll see how the Holy Spirit is working in your life and mine to bring us to the place of reigning in life by Christ Jesus. And what an accurate picture this is. David, as you know, was the man called in the Old Testament the man after God's own heart. Just as King Saul, the first king of Israel, was labeled the king after uh, the king like the nations around. And in 1 Samuel, we saw how King Saul represents the man of the flesh, the man who tries in his own right to please God by his own efforts, by his own good-intentioned, highly sincere efforts to try to be religious, and yet everything falls apart. It never works. Because the Christian life is not just a shabby imitation of the life of Jesus Christ. It isn't you doing your best to behave yourself and thus imitate the life of Christ. It must be the real thing. It must be Christ himself living his life in you. And Saul is a picture of the flesh in its attempt to imitate and David is a picture of the man after God's own heart, a believer in whom the Spirit of God dwells and who is open to the instruction of the Spirit and is taught to walk in the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at these uh, divisions quickly together. The first five chapters, remember, traces the road to full dominion. And it opens with the death of Saul. Saul, the man of the flesh. And it means that when Saul died, David is now free to be king over the land. And in your own life and mine, this is a picture of the time when we come at last to learn the full truth of the cross and what the cross has meant to us. Because it's the cross of Jesus Christ that puts the old man to death and brings to an end the reign of the flesh, which is the pictured, pictured here by King Saul. And when we believe that, when we at last, it, it breaks upon our astonished intellect that God really means it when he says that he has utterly separated us from the life of Adam and linked us to the life of Jesus Christ and that that old man has been crucified with Christ, has been nailed to a cross, has no longer any right to live. When we believe that, we're standing right in the place where the book of Second Samuel opens. We're now free to reign. King Saul is dead. And at first, uh, David, we learn, was king only over Judah, only over his own tribe. And for seven years he dwelt in the city of Hebron, we're told here. Uh, but while he was king over Judah, not yet king over all the land, there was a fierce battle going on, a struggle between the, the, the rights of David and the, and the house of Saul. In other words, the flesh dies hard. It doesn't give up its reign easily. 
There's a fierce battle that follows. But at last, in the first five chapters, we're told that David comes to the place where he is acknowledged as king over all the twelve tribes. All of them acknowledge him as king. And he's free now to assume his rightful, God-given, royal prerogatives over the whole of the land. Now in chapters 6, you find the beginning of the second movement in this book. And here we're tracing the, uh, the result in David's life when he comes to full authority within the kingdom. And his first concern is to bring back the ark of God. If you remember from 1 Samuel, the ark had been captured by the Philistine tribes. They'd taken it down and tried to set it up in their temple. But when the ark of God stood opposite these staring-eyed, ugly, grotesque fish gods of the Philistines, the uh, fish god could not stand it, and he fell flat on his face and finally ended up with broken uh, with a broken neck. And the Philistines realized that they... Uh, they couldn't get away with trying to keep the ark of God in their own temple, and they sent it to another city. And it remained there until David became king. But when he became king over all the twelve tribes, his first concern was to bring back the ark of God from the Philistines, where it belonged, back into the into the uh, into the central life of the, of the nation of Israel. And what does that signify? I hope you're interpreting this now in your own experience as we go along, because that's what makes it live. What does that signify? When you first came to the realization that Jesus Christ had the right to be Lord over every area of your life, was it not your heartfelt desire to put him right square in the center of your life? Some of you young people, perhaps, at the conference this weekend, came to that very place where you realized that that the old life, the old nature, the old self, with its persistent emphasis upon the ego and its own selfish desires, has been crucified, has been nailed to a cross. And your desire now is to set Christ right in the center of your life so that he governs and controls every area of it. That's what is figured here in, in, in uh, David's desire to bring back the ark. And the sixth chapter tells us the story of it. David went down, he built a brand new ox cart, and he set the ark in the middle of this brand new cart. And they started back with all the people gathered around the ark, singing and rejoicing, and it was a great time of enthusiastic, utterly sincere, completely dedicated devotion to God. But then a terrible thing happened. As the ark was going down the road, it hit a rut in the road. And it trembled and shook. And it looked as though it was going to fall off the cart. And a man named Uzzah, standing by, by the ark, reached out his hand to steady the ark. And as the moment his hand touched it, the lightning of God struck him and he fell dead in his tracks. And David was nonplussed. He didn't know what to do. And it cast, of course, a pall of tragedy over the whole scene. It abruptly arrested all the rejoicing and the merrymaking. And David was so sick of heart, he turned the ox cart aside and put the 
ark in the first house that was handy and went back to Jerusalem and was bitter and resentful against the Lord that he should do a thing like this. Well, that was the first lesson David had to learn. He became, it's recorded of us that David was very much afraid of the Lord when this happened. And he became very bitter. But the truth was that it was David's fault that Uzzah died. Because the book of Leviticus, you remember, as we went through that, had very specific and detailed instructions on how to move the ark of God. Only the Levites were to do this. And it was David's fault that the Levites had not been asked to move this ark, but that he he assumed, he was presumptuous enough to assume that God was so much on his side that he could get away with anything. And he put the ark on an ox cart and started to move it that way. Therefore, it was really David's fault because this happened. And David had to learn the very bitter lesson that that sincerity in serving God is never enough. That things must be done God's way as well as accomplishing God's will. Have you learned that yet? Have you ever had some favorite project of yours that you felt in the in the earnestness of your heart and the utter desire on your part to glorify God would be a wonderful thing to have happen? And you set about to bring it to pass. And perhaps you were you could justify what you wanted by by something from Scripture. It was the will of God you felt. And so you determined to bring it to pass. But God blew upon that activity and the whole thing crumbled to pieces. And uh, everything went wrong. And perhaps you had to uh, face the fact that all your cherished plans for doing something for God just utterly crumbled. You found yourself unable to do it. Everything went wrong. I talked with a young man recently who told me that he had... He was, he was going through a, a time of resentment and bitterness for this very cause. He said he felt sure that he knew what God wanted him to do in a certain matter. And he had determined that this was the will of God and he was going to do it. And he, uh, there was another incident in connection with that. And he felt he could foresee exactly how God was going to work. And his, he had announced to some of his friends that God would do a certain thing. But it all fell apart. Nothing happened exactly the way he planned. And he told me, he said, I, I, I confess to you that I feel God is unfair. He doesn't, he doesn't back up uh, what he said. And uh, as we talked together, it became very apparent that he was going through just this kind of a trial. Well, David had to learn that. And uh, the death of Uzzah stands as a constant testimony of the fact that God never will compromise on this score. That it is not uh, our, his job to do our program, but our job to so be in relationship to him that he leads us in his program. Now, the next thing we read in this section is the desire that entered into the heart of David to build a temple for God. The ark had been in the tabernacle, just a, a shoddy, rough old tent. And uh, David uh, reasoned with himself, here I live in a beautiful house of cedar, and God's ark has to dwell in an old tent. Why don't I build a house for God? And when Nathan the prophet heard it, he encouraged him in this. 
But God sent a message to Nathan and said, no, this is not right. And the reason it wasn't right was because David was a man of war. And it's only in type, or at least in picture, it's only Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace that will ever build the temple of God among human humanity. It's only in his character as the Prince of Peace. And David was the one who was chosen to represent him as the conquering one, the king overall. And so God said, no, it will not be David who builds the temple. And God sent uh, Nathan to David with this announcement that God had uh, rejected David's plan to build a temple, even though it was, again, well-intentioned and sincere and earnest. And David has learned now the lesson of Uzzah. And in a beautiful way, he simply recognizes God's right to direct his affairs and to say no if he doesn't like some plan or some program that's scheduled. And in this seventh chapter, you have a beautiful picture of the of the uh, obedience of the heart of David as he praises God for this and accepts this this uh, uh, disappointment as it was to him and uh, agrees that uh, God is right, that the temple should be built by Solomon, his son. But this doesn't stop him from starting to lay up some material for the temple so that when Solomon's time to build comes, he'll have plenty to build on. And the rest of this section is simply a report of the victory that David exercised over the enemies, the Philistines and the Edomites and the Ammonites. In other words, when God now is in the center of his life and his heart is ready to walk out upon his program, not David's program, but God's program, there is no hindrance to victory. All the internal enemies and the external enemies are completely under subjection of the man who walks in this relationship with God. And we have uh, also the picture of the grace that's shown to the house of Saul in the case of Mephibosheth, the, the lame son of Jonathan. Now chapter 11 begins the next section, the major section, and here's the story of failure in David's life. The black and bitter picture of David's double sin. And notice how it begins. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, that is, after the interruption of the winter season, uh, when uh, it was difficult, uh, time when proper and true battles were being fought for the Lord's cause, time for the kings to go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now that's where it begins, the failure. He forsook the post of duty. And it doesn't mean that it's wrong, uh, that it's, uh, that peacetime is a dangerous time necessarily. What it means here is that to be absent from the place where you belong is always a time when you're exposed to temptation. And you can tell the next part of the story in three simple sentences about David. He saw, he sent and inquired, and he took. Walking on the roof of his house, he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. And he sent and inquired about it, and then he took. And in those three sentences, you have a 
of beautiful tracing of the processes of temptation. He saw, he sent and inquired, and he took. And temptation in your life and mine will always follow this pattern. It starts first with simple desire. Nothing wrong with the desire. It's something that's awakened in us simply because of human nature. It may be along any avenue. Uh, but uh, the desire is there. But uh, that must be the place where it is dealt with. Either it is put away there, or it is encouraged by some uh, by by forming an intent to do this thing. And after desire comes the intent. And this is what happened with David. He saw the beautiful woman. He desired her. And then he intended, he started to work out the way by which he could take her. He sent and inquired about her. And this was, of course, followed immediately by the act. And so David, the man after God's own heart, is involved in the deep and black sin of adultery. And when it was accomplished, he refused to face the music, like so many of us. And instead of openly confessing this, acknowledging the wrong, trying to make it right, he did what we so often do. He did another sin to cover it up. This is always the process of sin. You commit one sin, you have to do another to cover that up, and ten more to cover the second up. And so it goes. And uh, when David uh, found out that... uh, uh, D- David realized that he was in this deep. He went in even deeper. And we have the story of how he set out to the army and got Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba, tried to trick him. But uh, Uriah, in his simple faithfulness to God, confounded him. And uh, it, was, it had to end finally in bloodshed. As Uriah was put into the heat of battle and Joab... David's uh, rugged and ruthless general was uh, became a, a conspirator in David in, with David in this plot, and David thus put himself to, in the, at the mercy of this man, and Uriah was slain in battle. And later, when Nathan is sent to him, Nathan says he slew Uriah with his own hands, by the, or rather by the hands of the Ammonites. But David is the murderer. So here suddenly. Uh, Without uh, warning almost, there breaks into David's life this double sin of adultery and murder. Now, this is the man whom God has chosen to be the ancestor of the Lord Jesus. And this sin has appalled us, many of us, as we've read this and wondered that a man like David could do this. And uh, somebody says, you mean this is what God means when he says a man after God's own heart? And there have been many who have pointed the finger at David and said, how could, how could God ever pass over a thing like this on the part of this man? But if you want to see what it means when God calls David a man after God's own heart, look what happens in David's heart when God sends Nathan the prophet to him and he points a finger at him. He tricks him with a little parable. And then when it comes to the punchline, he says, thou art the man. And immediately David acknowledges it, he faces it, he no longer tries to justify it, he acknowledges his his total wrong in this. And it was at this point that David wrote that psalm that all of us have turned to at one time or another when we've been laden with guilt, the 51st psalm. Not, Not too long ago, a man came to me with having 
been involved in the same kind of a problem that David was involved in. And I turned to this very psalm, and together we went over it, and I saw the Holy Spirit take and wash away all the guilt and all the the stain and the the ugliness of that thing in this man's life by using the words of that beautiful psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah had been discovered. Now the result in David's life is given in chapter 12. We're told that when uh, Nathan came with this announcement that uh, thou art the man, that uh, he... He said to David in verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and uh, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. That was literally fulfilled when Absalom, David's son, did this very evil thing. For, Nathan says, you did it secretly. But God says, I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed that you have, utter, you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. Now here's a great lesson in forgiveness. There are a lot of people that ask God to forgive their sins. And they think by that, that means that God should remove every result of their sin. And they should never have to suffer any any results of their evil. But now notice what God does with David. God forgives David. And because of that forgiveness, after David's confession, David's life is spared. For under the law, he had lost his right to live, even as king, because of this sin. He should have been put to death. But God spares the king's life because of his confession and forgives him and restores, therefore, that inner personal relationship between God and, and David, so that David had a sense of peace and of guilt forgiven. But God also deals with us not only in grace, but in government. And in government, he's concerned with the, the effect of our deeds upon others around about us. And those effects go on regardless of whether we're forgiven or not forgiven. So that David must face here the results of his deeds. And as we read in the New Testament, God chastens those whom he loves. The first result was that the, the baby that was born of this uh, illegitimate union died, even though David pled with the Lord that he might spare his life in a, in a pathetic, poignant passage where he's torn with grief, waiting before the Lord. The baby dies. That's the first thing. And then the predicted result in, in David's home and in his family and in his kingdom takes place. Remember, the New Testament tells us, be not deceived. That is, don't kid yourself. God is not mocked, Paul says. 
For if you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. Now as to your personal relationship with God, that can, that can be restored immediately. That's forgiveness. But the evil results of every misstep in the flesh goes on and begins to affect those outside of you, beginning with those closest to you. So that David was, uh, was told here that there would never again be peace in his house. Now, in the rest of the chapters of this section, from chapter 13 on, you begin to see how this was fulfilled. Here, the next chapter tells us the black and dark picture of Ammon. Amnon, David's son, as he sinned against his own sister, Tamar, and forced her. And this resulted in uh, a black uh, hatred born in Absalom, David's other son's heart, the brother of Tamar, against Amnon. And so in David's own family, among his own sons, there be rebellion and of evil and of lust that was created by David's own failure. And in the story of Ammon and his quarrel with Absalom and finally his murder at the hands of Absalom, you find that King David is utterly helpless to do anything about it. He cannot even rebuke his own son because Ammon is simply following in King David's footsteps. He's only doing those sins of passion which David himself had set the example example for in taking Bathsheba to be his wife. And then we have the, the story of the rebellion of Absalom. How this handsome, brilliant, uh, gifted young son of, of David fomented a rebellion throughout the whole kingdom and secretly worked underhanded against his own father and attempted to take the throne and to bring the people unto himself. And uh, finally was so successful that David, with all his court, has to flee the city again as an exile. Imagine that. The man whom God has set to be uh, king over Israel, the man who was to reign over all the twelve tribes, whom God, whose throne God had given to him, now has to flee like a common criminal because of his failure in his own moral life. And uh, we, yet, throughout this, David's heart is, is penitent and resting upon God. He's acknowledging the fact that these are things that were a result of his own folly. But he's trusting God, nevertheless, to work it out. It's a beautiful picture of what, hap- what should happen when, when we do fall into sin and failure. And evil results begin to come, what the attitude of the heart should be. And there's never a word of complaint. There's never any attempt to blame God. There's no bitterness on David's part. But there's simply the recognition that God can still work this out, and he does. And he restores David to the throne. And Absalom is taken. You remember how his own vanity is his downfall, as his long hair that he gloried in is caught in the branches of a tree. And Joab, the ruthless general of David, finding him there, kills him. And uh, when it, in Absalom's death, the rebellion is crushed. But that isn't the whole story. In chapter uh, 18, 19, let's see. No, chapter 20, you have the final... Uh, step in this is the rebellion of Sheba against King David. All of this stemming from that one double sin on David's part. No peace in his house the rest of the time. Forgiveness, God's grace to him, God's restoration, 
God's blessing in his personal life, but still reaping the results of his own folly. There's a popular song that goes around today. I think many of you have heard it. I don't remember all the words exactly, but the theme of it is, the Lord above has given to man certain abilities and responsibilities. I remember one verse says, the Lord above has given, uh, has commanded that God, that man should love his neighbor. But the song goes on and says, with a little bit of luck, with a little bit of luck, when his neighbor comes around, you won't be home. And uh, the, the Lord above has said that uh, man should be faithful to his wife and never go philandering out. But with a little bit of luck, with a little bit of luck, she'll never find out. And uh, so on it goes. And it's, a, it a, it's an exquisite capturing of the world's philosophy on, uh, uh, on God's program of running life. You can get by. It's a beautiful repetition in modern, set to modern music of the ancient satanic lie. You can get by. God's not going to bring you these things to pass. Uh, if you eat of this tree, you'll not die, Satan said to Eve. And with a little bit of luck, things will work out. Things will all take place, just as you hope it will. But this is the philosophy that God sets the lie to as he shows us in David here that there comes an inevitable sequence of events when failure steps in. Now, chapter 21 through 24 is just a quick summary of the, of the end of the book. We have the, we have the epilogue, uh, an appendix to this book, which gra- gathers together, not in chronological order at all, but just gathers up some of the lessons uh, that David learned through the 40 years of his reign as king. The first is the story of the Gibeonites in chapter 21, and it's simply to the effect that uh, the past must be reckoned with, that if there are things in our past that can still be corrected, we have a responsibility before God to go back and set those things straight. And many a man or a woman, boy or girl, has learned that money that he stole before he became a Christian still weighs upon his conscience, and he's had to... Uh, get together funds perhaps that he could well or ill afford to lose and and pay back a debt, uh, a theft perhaps that he was guilty of before he became a Christian. Because God desires truth in the inward parts. He's not content with just mere outward formalities. He wants the whole of the life to be right and The Gibeonites is a story of how David had to go back and correct something that happened under King Saul. But because he was the, uh, he was Saul's heir to the throne, he had to set it straight. In uh, chapter 23, 22, you have the beautiful psalm, part of which was read to us tonight. It's also repeated again in the book of Psalms, the 18th psalm. And the key to this psalm is in verses 26 and through 31, David sings, With the loyal, thou dost show thyself loyal. With the blameless man, thou dost show thyself blameless. With the pure, thou dost show thyself pure. With the crooked, thou dost show thyself perverse. Thou dost deliver a humble people, but thy eyes are upon the haughty to bring them down. 
Yea, thou art my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. And then this figure that I always love. David cries, Yea, by thee I can crush a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The promise of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. What does he mean? Well, he simply means that what you are to God, that's what God will be to you. If you're open and honest and perfectly forthright with him, God will be perfectly open and perfectly honest and forthright with you. If you tend to be crooked and perverse and deceitful and lying to God, he will cause all your circumstances to deceive you and lie to you and affect you. If you are, uh, if you are pure in heart and see everything in the proper light, you'll discover that God is this way to you, that he brings more of the beauty of purity into your own heart and soul. This is what Paul says, cries out for in Philippians, when he says that I may so lay hold of Jesus Christ that he may lay hold in me of all that he desires, that I may apprehend Christ in order that he may apprehend me. What I am to him, he'll be to me, he said. And this is exactly what David discovered. Then you have another song, a beautiful song in chapter 23, just a brief one here. His own testimony of grace as he tells how God did it all in his life. God set him on the throne. God kept him there. God solved his problems. God moved out to meet his need. And the last chapter is the story of the, of the third sin of David recorded in this book. The, his sin in numbering Israel and the plague that came upon the people of Israel when David, because of pride, began to reckon again upon his own resources and upon the resources of numbers and of apparent uh, military might instead of rely upon, relying upon the grace and power of God. And what does it teach us? Well, one great truth. Old natures never die. They just smell that way. They're always there, ready to spring into activity the minute we cease relying upon the Spirit of God. Sin never dies of old age. No matter how long you learn to walk with God, it's still possible to fall. And the only thing that maintains it is the quiet, day by day, moment by moment, walk in faith. Well, that's the book of Second Samuel. Shall we bow together in prayer? Our Father, thank you for this glimpse into our own lives and hearts. May its truth grip us. May we realize these are not mere words to tickle our fancy or instruct our intellect for the moment, but these are revelations of what life is all about, the secrets of living. May we take them seriously and heed them and love thee and serve thee and yield ourselves to thee day by day in Christ's name. Amen.